Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Jennifer Kayong Lee, your host, and with me here are Suyon Jae An and Archana Madhavan, who together co-translated a collection of poems titled Glory Hole, originally written by Kim Hyun in Korean. This English language translation was published by Siegel Books in 2022, while the Korean was published in South Korea by Moonji Publishing in 2014. Glory Hole is a fantastical collection of queer poems that are uncomfortable, bodily, fluid-filled, and delightfully puzzling to read. Thank you so much for joining me, Sion and Archana. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So I was wondering if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourselves, as well as your own paths to becoming translators. Suhyun, you want to go first? Gonna go. Um, <laughs> yeah, it happened. Oh, anyway, um, yeah, I will go first. Um, hi, uh, my name is Suhyun An. Um, my middle name is Jung, and that is my legal name, um, so I didn't make that up. Um, so I sometimes go by uh, Suhyun Jung An, Suhyun Jae An. Uh, I'm a PhD student in East Asian studies. Uh, for my research, I actually don't work on Korean literature or contemporary Korean culture. Um, I work on what people usually think of as pre-modern stuff. Um, specifically, I work on Confucian philosophy from Ming and Qing and Joseon dynasties. And I'm interested in moral philosophy as well as political and legal philosophies in both uh, historical and contemporary contexts. Um, that said, um, I translate for fun. And this doesn't mean I take literary translation lightly. It's just that I have another passion that doesn't converge with contemporary Korean literature. Um, so how did I get involved in literary translation? Um, I think I was naturally drawn to it for two reasons. Uh, first, I've been always interested in languages, and this includes literature, but also foreign languages and even non-natural language. Um, I also love different modes of expression. Uh, for my research, I try to be clear, precise, and concise, but um, I equally love being destructive, disruptive, um, playful in an artistic context. And so, yeah, I think poetry as a genre and translation as an activity capture the essence of a language and the playfulness of a language language specifically. Um, and second, um, this, is what, this one is a little bit more uh, complicated and personal. Um, so since when I was five, I've always written poems and short stories, and I wrote well for my age. Um, and... But all of this was done in Korean because I grew up in Korea. Uh, and then I moved to the United States when I was a mid-teenager. And I didn't have a language barrier, actually, because uh, I started to learn English when I was five. And I was going to school with American curriculum with American teachers before I came to the United States. But um, I felt like I was losing the emotive part of language. So... Uh, for the first two years, I continued to write short stories and poems, but I I just felt like I couldn't do it. Um, it's just not there. 
and I felt like I was losing Korean at the same time. Um, I could read um, newspapers, of course, but uh, those little nuances and sensitivity, I felt like I no longer have that. Um, so I struggled a little bit, um, and I stopped writing short stories or poetry altogether for like five years. Um, and I think it was in the second year or third year in the in university, um, I felt like I want to write again. Um, I was encouraged by some of the professors to take creative writing seriously, and I also developed more of sensitivity to the language. And uh, but I was a little afraid to go back to writing altogether. Um, so I started with translation. Um, I felt like I could use Korean language as a vehicle and the Korean poets, well, they are a better writer than me, right? So um, I felt like I could that use that as resources. And I think it worked well. I really enjoyed it. Um, and I could focus on the language itself. Um, and so I ran a translation blog called Untranslation. And I translated a lot of Korean poems and somehow people liked it. Um, so I got several more gigs, and I also started a literary journal uh, called Nabilera Contemporary Korean Literature, where uh, I and other translators translated um, works of young Korean uh, writers, and that's where I met Archana as well. Um, so yeah, that is my journey. Um, it's more about the identity struggle, I guess. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, thank yeah, thank you for that. That I actually uh, I I can relate to a lot of what you said, Suhyun, um, especially around writing and and poetry and and feeling like you lost a little bit of that and then coming back to it through translation for sure. So um, yeah, I can start. Uh, my name is Archana. I've been translating from Korean into English since 2019, and uh, I've been learning Korean for over a decade now. Um, so my background actually has nothing at all to do with translation or writing. I studied molecular biology in undergrad, and then I was in a PhD program for immunology at Stanford, um, which three years into it decided it was academia was not for me. So I left with my master's degree. And now I work as a learning experience designer at a software company. Um, and that basically means I create a lot of e-learning and training content on how to use our software. So my day job is very different from, from translation. Um, but yeah, I guess my journey started with uh, learning Korean, which um, I fell in. I fell into it almost uh, on accident. Um, I've always really loved languages. I grew up multilingual, um, and I was actually learning Japanese uh, at the time when I was. I was watching. I think I watched this really cheesy Korean horror movie that my friend recommended to me, and I remember just really liking the way the language sounded. Um, and and I think the sounds of languages have always uh, have always been the first thing that's attracted me to it and have made me want to learn them. So um, I started watching a lot of Korean dramas back when you could still find them on YouTube and <laughs> illegally and stuff. So uh, I used to watch them there. And then I stumbled on this podcast about teaching yourself Korean, and I just started listening to it casually and. It, Honestly, it felt like I absorbed the language so fast over over the years. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of had like this 
pretty immature understanding of translation. Um, you know, once I got to a point where I could I could read novels in Korean, I was I was very kind of um, oh well, why would I ever read anything in translation now? I could just read the original work. <laughs> Um, but I think I started thinking about translation after I read The Vegetarian in English. So, um, you know, after The Vegetarian won the Booker Prize, uh, Booker International Prize, um, I started just following a lot of the praise and criticism around Deborah Smith's translation. And I, and I grew pretty interested in translation as a craft and practice. Um, so I started uh, reading more about translations. I started reading translators' notes a little bit more carefully. I was in a workshop uh, trying to just learn translation. I did, I did the workshop through Catapult, which was like an intro introduction to translation workshop. And it was in 2019, I believe, that I reached out to Soo Hyun, who was the um, editor-in-chief of Nebula at the time, and told him I was interested in translation opportunities. And uh, my first major translation was was um, part of the novella Hongaki Den Sanai by Ohanki, the man who became a flamingo. And um, my first attempt at translating poetry came with translating Dai Pengi by Jin Eun-young, um, Snail by Jin Eun-young for Chogwa. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, and so that just kind of you know, it started with that. I went on to translate some webtoons for some period of time and started to, I think, I think of translation now as an expression of um, kind of the best parts of, of English and Korean coming together in one act for me. And, um, you know, just everything I cherish about both languages, um, and and so I really really enjoy the process of translation probably even more than the end end result. Um, so I just feel like it's an opportunity for me to really come close uh, to the languages and express myself. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about me. And I still do some translation uh, outside of uh, outside of work. Um, so yeah, I hope to continue that uh, in the future. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. I love how vibrantly both of you <laughs> have been able to describe um, like kind of the emotional component and like mm -hmm. the parts of translation that are about like working our way through like our relationships to multiple different languages. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think like like Archana was describing, like when I was younger, like I had this kind of naive conception of translation as like, well, they just took something in one language and put it in another. <laughs> but then um, as I got older, and I think in many of the ways both of you have described, it's really, it's, there. there's just so many facets of it that um, are not about like the mechanical mm -hmm. reproduction of something in one language and another. Um, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'll, I'll start with our usual big question about this book. So what brought you two to this project of translating Glory Hole? Um, cool. I, I think I can start because, you know, I have a more superficial answer, like a factual part <laughs> yes. of it. And also like, you know, my personal like a experience. So um, so the factual part. So I featured Kim Hyun's poems uh, in Nabuera. And sometime later, I got an email from Bishan from um, Sequel Books. And uh, so that was that should be like in 2019, I think. Um, anyway, he told me he read the magazine and he wants to feature um, Kim's poetry collection for the pride list. 
uh, and it's a series of queer literature around the world translated into English. And I said, yeah, of course, I'm thrilled. Um, and since I had translated the poems in the magazine, um, I decided to translate the collection. But after translating like one third, I figured that uh, Kim's poems are much harder to translate than mm-hmm. I had thought. Uh, so I asked Archana to join because she has pure talent and I was really impressed by her um, translation. Um, she captures the nuances in, in the Korean text perfectly and she knows how to render it beautifully in English. So yeah, I had no doubt about her. Um, so that's what happened factually and I think this um, has a more fundamental like sub question like what drew us to Kim's poems in, in the first mm-hmm. place uh, I think I was captivated by Kim Young's style um, it's destructive um, it destroys imagery it destroys common sense it defies the line between fiction and reality much more so than most other poems I've read um, and it defies the syntax, and yet the destructiveness and the um, fragmented imagery somehow makes sense, and it feels really powerful in a create creative way. So I, yeah, I was so into it. Yeah, it's beautifully put. Nothing to add, really. Yeah, I was super surprised and grateful when Suhyun reached out to me. Um, I didn't, I hadn't read anything of Kim Hyun's poetry and didn't really know much about him. And honestly, hadn't really read a lot of poetry until then. Um, had just, I was just getting started, sort of reading um, poet uh, Korean poetry through um, recommendations I got from other translators who translated for Chokwa and other poetry and writers I had read on Nebulera. Um, so I'm super grateful for the, the trust and the opportunity for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And what was the process of co-translating like? Then? Oh, I, I can I can start with this. Um, <laughs> you know, I first of all will say I have so much gratitude towards towards Suhyun for his patience. And he was not only, you know, a great co-translator, but he was also a coach almost <laughs> through oh. a lot of really terrifying and debilitating self-doubt that I was experiencing through translating this work. Um, and I will also add the bulk of our work took place in 2020 uh, during some of the worst times of, of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally lost two relatives that year and there were wildfires in California. California, things were very unstable with my day job. And and on top of this being just a really extremely challenging work, I mean, I remember Suhyun being like, this is probably the hardest thing you will translate in a really long time. <laughs> it was a lot. And, um, you know, I, I definitely look back on that time. And I think that, um, you know, I could have been a better co-translator. I think we could have been um, kinder to each other during that time. But I think we really did work well together. The times that um, the that we came together, uh, I feel like the, the the translations that we we did together were um, were really really great. Um, so one incident that I remember is, you know, Suhyun would tag me in comments and be like, "Hey, um, you know, I think this is a pun or this is a metaphor that Kim Hyun is deliberately subverting. Um, is there an expression you can think of that evokes this imagery or this sound? And here are some things I came up with. What are your thoughts?" Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I pulled out one one example of this was uh, in the poem uh, "Mr. Withers of Withering Wood," which was in Korean. Shido shido shiden su- 
to presidency in <laughs> Korea. Oh, wow. That's yeah. incredible. Um, the decision to translate presidency to Mr. Withers was something that we came up with together after dis- discussing, you know, how we could preserve the alliteration and the wordplay in the title. And um, and I think that's probably one of my, my favorite things that, that we did in this collection. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, to answer your question, the process of co-translating was basically what Archana described. Uh, it's the you discuss with um, each other. So it's actually the system I adopted in Nebulera, uh because mm-hmm. I believe anyone can benefit from working together. Um, so there, a translator would translate a work and the reviewer would juxtapose it with the original work and critique the tra- translation. And after then, the translator and reviewer would discuss and come up with a better translation. Um, but for Glory Hall, I figured I needed more than a reviewer. Um, this is a really intense work with a mm-hmm. lot of cultural references, twists, and other experimental elements. So I definitely needed a co-translator. So basically, uh, for Glory Hall, I translated a portion of the collection, and Archana did the same. And we mm-hmm. went over each other's translation and critiqued it, and I would ask questions if I need help. And so... Yeah, this process is super important because the collection shouldn't sound like it was written by two di- two different people, <laughs> and mm-hmm, yeah. it does improve the quality of of the translation. And uh, as Archana said, I really enjoyed working together. Um, and Archana said I was being kind, but I was just being <laughs> truthful. Uh, she is a really nice translator, and I had to say that. <laughs> um, and I was a little worried that, you know, Archana might leave this industry altogether because, you know, I think Korean literary uh, translation circle would benefit a lot uh, from her. And uh, I'm glad that she came back. And she's a lot more active than I am. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Suhyun really like brought me, I think, into this world um, and just, yeah, opened me up to this experience. And um, I, I feel like I grew a lot as a translator through our interactions and, and you know, far from leaving the translation world, I'm, I'm yeah, um, now reading more poetry, more kind of um, involved in the contemporary works and, and new writers and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, you know, I feel like you really kickstarted whatever I have to contribute in this industry. I'm glad. I'm, I'm so excited to see, like, the future things you will translate. So, um, yeah, what were, what were your favorite parts, each of you, of translating Glory Hole? Um, so for me, you know, it was less about the actual translation and more about almost this detective work that I was doing to uncover all of the references within a single poem. I mean, Kim Hyun puts often puts real people in these fictionalized or fantastical situations. Like he refers to a lot of um, filmmakers and writers and actors uh, often in, in sort of, um, yes, yeah, surreal situations. And, and he slightly changes or subverts real historical events or real works of, of art. Um, and so uncovering those references and recognizing what the author was doing and in, in deliberate, deliberately kind of overturning um, what we expect, uh, it was it was a lot of fun. And I always felt like I I uncovered this this layer that was previously 
felt opaque to me. Um, yeah, that was probably my favorite part. Yeah. Um, my favorite part, I think, um, I enjoyed the the part Archana said as well, but that was a little bit of headache for me. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I was struggling, and Archana she just like magically showed up with all of these like, references, and I'm like, I'm so glad. Um, so yeah, I think I the part I really enjoyed was the translation, um, and. Um, I thought of this translation as destroying the convention with the poet. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I said, the content is bewildering for me and probably for other Korean readers as well. And so yeah, you read the line and you go, hmm, how does that even make sense? Um, but when they're put together, Kim makes them disturbingly sensical and uh, they shouldn't make sense, but somehow they do. And I needed to uh, recreate that experience for English readers. Mm-hmm. Um, but the hard part is that you can't simply destroy every single word and line. You're not reading a line written by an um, aphasia patient. And mm-hmm. Norris Kim's line, like, you know, Chomsky's um, famous example, uh, colorless green ideas sleep furiously. It, it is more sensical than that. So you need to find the balance between being sensical and nonsensical. And just like the poet did, um, <clears throat> you need to uh, capture the fragility of the language and be fragile yourself. So basically, Kim Young was playing, being playful. So I was allowed to be and had to be playful too. And I think that was the best part. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think just reading them, like the playfulness was there. Like I was confused, but they were playful. And so, yeah, I, I think you really captured that so we've heard a lot about um kind of yeah the complexities and the fun of translating so i was wondering if you could each kind of share with us the translation from the collection so listeners can really get a sense of the atmosphere and the language of these program these these poems which you've been describing Mm -hmm. cool um i'll start because i have the uh first poem of the collection (laughs) um cool um so it's titled Inhumane. Inhumane. Having drifted, the night returns. A ragged human steps into a dark, crawling tub. From the tip of the human toe that touches water for the first time, fish scales break out in the shade of mugwort. The human, for the first time in a while, is soaked in the slimy sensation. Fins are more suitable for humans than two legs. The human repeats. Perching on the bed, the human elongates his neck. Scouting around the meal that several can share, the stretched neck and head sweep swollen dust and glide into a bathroom. The flowing face follows the human fin. The human takes a breath and holds it with his gills. You've lost human breath, human. The human's face radiates like pewter. The nape of the human neck is torn in the shade of lead. A fading little human comes to the tearing human and sits. As he unevenly cuts his growing tongue, the little human, for a change, 
tries to invent words that a human cannot comprehend. A human needn't speak human words. The stretched human wriggles, the disappearing human tongues stutter. The mutated human moves much more naturally, and they are at rest. The topwater surface is pushed into the night's slumber. The altitude of the returned night delves deep like a construction crane. Humans separately discover their lives. Humans separately hang out as humans do. Human words that are absent from the human have no meaning. Humans are quiet. They are silent. A ghost that's on strike enters the house without a shadow and illuminates the labor of, of a candle. Human, human, human disappears like a period mark. Um, there are five footnotes attrib- attributed to the title, and I'll read them in, in, in the order. One, from humans, a knight has emerged. Two, tonight, the rally of humans make the poet take the lead. Three, knight humans chant a disabled slogan, we also want to become humans. Four, a novelist from a human perspective writes a poem titled, A Human About a Knight. Five, Into the night of humans who have lost a human, a sack of ghosts is walking as though it will be blown away. That's the end of it. Wow, thank you for that. (laughs) Okay, I I will read um, Ashes of Time, which is one of my favorites in this collection. Ashes of Time. As Oyoung Fung walked the desert where once had been an ocean, he thought, if I went back in time, I'd be able to stroll along the beach thick with peach blossoms and see the season's first snowfall with Leslie Chung. But isn't that impossible for me? Oyoung Fung stopped walking and dug a hole in the sand. He buried a piece of white bone from his neck. A puddle formed. He wet his throat. The puddle dried up. How many more collarbones would he need to leave this planet of sand? Oyang Feng moved his body, which was slowly becoming boneless. The sun pursued him doggedly. Oyang Feng sagged little by little to the ground. Tomorrow I will reform into tomorrow's skeleton. Oyang Feng stared into the hole in the sand where the pale pink salt water should have been sloshing around. Softly, a single petal of a peach blossom appeared like a mirage and then vanished without a trace. Would that I could nullify the time slipping away from us. Ashes of time in the sky grew apart and the night rolled in. Oyang Feng pulled the bamboo hat over his eyes and thought of time. Everything is my fault. Oyang Feng pulled a red pouch from the depths of his chest. He opened the pouch. It was an ankle bone from time that he had received from Leslie Chung. He put his lips to the bone and smelled a light floral fragrance. Everything turned back into the oceans of time. Oyang Feng faultlessly collapsed into the sand hole where the darkness was flailing. 
His skin turned red and ripe until the sun set and the moon rose. It turned blue and cooled off. Ouyang Feng's moist pupils looked like tide pools that had just formed. His eyes soon vanished. The sandstorm that carries his bones began to form Ouyang Feng's ankle bones. And now the footnotes. One. Back in the day, I used to look at the mountain and wonder what was over it. Two. I don't know why I did that. I couldn't help myself. When I left, I felt his tears on my face, drying. Three. The first day of spring had passed. It is now the day on which insects wake. Friends usually came to see me around this time, but this year they did not. Four. I thought I had won, but one day I looked into the mirror and realized I had lost. Because when I was at my most beautiful, the one I loved was not by my side. Five. They say the reasons humans suffer so much is because of memory. That year onward, I forgot many things and only remembered that I loved peach blossoms. Six. The only thing I can do for something I do not have is not forgetting it. Seven. If a sword cuts fast enough, the sound of gushing blood sounds pleasant, like a breeze. I never thought I would hear that, that sound coming from my own blood. Eight. The flag does not move. The breeze does not move either. Only your heart moves. And that's it. Thank you. Um, yeah, so for both of you, um, you read poems that have that, or you read the poem and then you read the footnotes. Mm -hmm. So one of the many formally interesting features of the poems in Glory Hole is all of these footnotes. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about them and if there were any that were particularly memorable to translate. Um, all of them are pretty hard, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> and, uh, I remember trying to count the poem that doesn't have footnotes. Um, and mm -hmm. there were very few. I think there were like, you know, one or two. And I was devastated. <laughs> this is so hard. Um, so... I don't know if there is particularly memorable one. Um, it's just like a, all of them are hard. But I do remember uh, in certain instances, uh, as I said earlier, I was struggling with a lot of references. And uh, Archana showed up and she solved a lot of problems I had. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think the hard part is that Flintnote pretends to... Uh, provide an exp explanation to fiction, but mm -hmm. uh, they are themselves fictitious. Um, so uh, even figuring out if the uh, footnote is making a reference or not was hard. You know, if you know that it's making reference, you have to find that. But to begin with, it's not clear if Kimian is making it up or sometimes he did, or he mm -hmm. is like uh, distorting the real, real references in the footnotes. Yeah, it it kind of reminds me of that genre of literature. I think they call it ergodic literature, which um, refers to um, readers having to make this non-trivial effort to navigate through a narrative. And so these footnotes are, are often not really there to add clarity or context, which is usually why we have footnotes, especially in the cases of translation. And, um, you know, it's often there in this work to add another narrative or confuse the narrative in 
the main body of the text. Um, one thing that I remember being interesting, actually, in the, the latter process of, of getting this work finished is... Um, some of the footnotes were signed translator by the author. Um, and often actually these footnotes were the most like quote unquote informative as in that they would explain a certain reference in more detail. And I remember it confused our editor and he would have like in the manuscript, he was like, you don't need this footnote in here. And I was like, no, 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 that's actually not by us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so yeah, that was, uh, that was, that was, memorable for sure yeah we ended up adding a real footnote that is helpful saying mm-hmm. that these footnotes saying these are by translators are not by translators <laughs> not by yeah. yeah i laughed uh, when i i read that but yeah i love that you bring up that um often we think of footnotes as like explanatory because i think definitely like by the time I was through with this collection, like I'd accepted that like footnotes are not there to explain anything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that just became like normal to me. And now that you mentioned it, I'm like, wait, maybe that is like not generally how we think of footnotes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess speaking also of footnotes and um, some of what you two have talked about already, there's a real mix of cultural references throughout these poems, especially in the footnotes. And some of the references are Korean, but I think just as or even more often, there are references to um, American and like other Western cultural icons, events, movies, and more like so many things that like I had, I don't know, I, I never heard of, don't know much about that. <laughs> and so I, was, I, I I'm glad to hear that like, it was also a struggle for you. Like it wasn't just me who was like, confused um or like was like well like there's a lot happening in the world that i don't know about but (laughs) i I was wondering if um yeah any of these references were particularly like um either difficult or even just like surprising when it came to translating them i have a couple um so tale of the chishi girl uh was basically incomprehensible to me (laughs) hey um... (laughs) I was about to say that. I yeah, was thinking about that as an example. Yeah, yeah um, go for it. I mean, so I, what I did find out was there's this reference to biographies of exemplary women, which is compiled by a Han Dynasty Confucian scholar, and it supposedly includes stories of exemplary women, and it and it's there to serve as moral education of Chinese women at the time, but. And it was clear that like the contents of the poem was was subverting that like it wasn't actually referring to one of the stories and the biographies of exemplary women. But I I remember that was one of the poems that I I think we had split up and and I was supposed to translate it and eventually I was like Suhyun I just I can't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think this was the last poem we completed because we were both. (laughs) pretty frustrated with the poem (laughs) it took a lot of time to figure out how to do this um but yeah uh as for the references i think you know uh western or american references 
they were tricky, but uh, they were manageable. Um, once you find the reference, a translation wasn't an issue because, well, um, American references are in English, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, the challenging part was actually the um, non-American or non-European references. Um, so uh, the tale of Chishi Girl, um, it's in the style of... Um, some kind of like a folktale, um, mm-hmm. Korean or Chinese. Um, so the when I say the reference here, it's not the reference to a story specifically, but the uh, poet is making a reference to the style. Mm-hmm. And this was absolutely the hardest to figure out. Um, uh, um, usually, a folktale has a pattern of plot um, that makes it recognizably a folktale. And, um, but this one doesn't, you know, this one is, it sounds like folktale because of the style, not because of its content, you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, uh, um, mm-hmm. period. And, um, also, um, Korean folktales, for example, um, they aren't consciously Korean. It's written in Korean and it happened in Korea. And the same goes to Chinese folktales and all other folktales, but they are, that's more of contingency that shapes the folktale. So the folktale doesn't itself shout, hey, this folktale is Korean. Mm-hmm. But for Kim Hyun's folktales, um, first, the plot is, isn't recognizably folktale-ish. And um, it's the language. And second, um, all the other poems in the collection are from the 20th century, 21st century, futuristic, American, and so forth. And this one is so. This one is consciously Asian, like you know. This is this one is consciously Chinese. Um, so I had to think a lot about how to deal with this kind of reference. So, uh, stylistic reference. So I ended up uh, putting um, Chinese characters in parentheses in the English translation to make the position of this poem clear. You know, um, the position within the collection clear. Um, which is clear to Korean readers, um, and I didn't want to want it to sound like a folktale, like from basically anywhere. You know, it should it should sound like this one is from China, um, and um, yeah. So if I were to translate a folktale that's like a standing alone, a real folktale, I wouldn't put Chinese characters. I would actually try my best to make it comfortable for English readers. Mm -hmm. But uh, for this poem, I had to go exactly against that. And yeah, making all those kind of little decisions that can be uh, influential, I think that was really hard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. I I think that if I, if... um, I, that you know what you said about like if it's Western, a Western reference, looking it up in English is actually not that, uh, it's not that hard. Um, but the the really tough thing about this is, um, having to look this up in in Korean and and you know possibly in, in Chinese and my not having any knowledge in Chinese and in, in Korean, my um you know I would say my research skills in Korean are not very good. I'm not good at skimming things. So when it, when I had to read a Wikipedia article in Korean, I was like reading word word for word, like you know sentence by sentence, and I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot like 
you know, parse what is happening here. So I was super uh, grateful that Suhyun took that on. And I think the decisions that he made um, really brought the flavor of the poem uh, out. Um, one thing, you, you know, um, that you, know, you mentioned surprising, something that was surprising, I wanted to bring up because this actually, this really did surprise me, was in that poem, um, Mr. Withers of Witheringwood, there's actually a direct reference to a poet named Ijeni, um, oh. and her poem, Noksun Shie Noksun Gita. Uh, which mm. in the poem is translated as Mr. Noxon's Rusty Guitar. And mm. that poem is is from her collection, Amado Africa, maybe, Af- maybe Africa or perhaps Africa. Mm. Um, and this is super interesting to me because I had actually just started reading Amado Africa <laughs> at the mm. time. And now, two years later, I'm actually translating that collection as part of the uh, Alta Emerging Translators Mentorship Program, which I can talk about um, maybe at the end of, of this. But I, I emailed Ijeni and I was like, hey, you know, I helped translate Kim Hyun's Glory Hole. And there was this reference to your poem in the po- in, in, in his poem. Mm-hmm. And she was like, oh, yeah, we're really good friends. And he asked me, <laughs> he was like, he, he told me that he was re- referencing that poem. And that's so cool that you're translating his work. And I was like, whoa. Oh, what, a, what an interesting <laughs> small world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The yeah. thing about the um, references being in Korean, the problem is that these are like uh, made up. So even I, fortunately, I know Chinese, but even so, um, mm-hmm. since these were like a uh, fictitious, um, it's just like you know the reference wasn't there. It's um, <laughs> like, you know, for example, um, in the uh, first footnote, it says, uh, I, th- I, th- I think like, when people hear Yubang in this context, for Korean people, they think about the three kingdoms. Um, I think its name in Chinese should be Liu Fang. Um, the, mm. I, I got the accent wrong, probably, but the pronunciation right. But yeah, so it's a person from your, uh, the Three Kingdom. But when you see the Chinese characters, it's the Chinese characters for boobs, you know? Yeah, <laughs> right? I remember so, that part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, all these kind of um, crazy things he did here, it's just impossible to, I guess, search on google and you know trying to figure out it's just like a you're left alone and you have to figure out what to do by yourself mm-hmm. the only yeah. reference he gives is the style mm-hmm. so i guess on the topic of like stylistic choices that you made as translators um there, there are points in Glory Hole where you have series of sentences where instead of periods or punctuation, you use capitalization to show separation between what would be sentences, like capitalizing the start of like a new thought or something. And um, this happens, for example, in the poem, A Tribute to a Replicant, about which Gary mumbled. It also happens in like a number of other poems, I'm sure mm-hmm. you remember. Um, but then there are also places where you use lowercase, like in the poem, Green Grass Disappeared. Um, you use like a lowercase pronoun, I. But in Korean, like hunger doesn't distinguish between separate lowercase or uppercase letters. And so I was wondering if you could just tell us a bit about which led to the decision to use capitalization in these ways. Um, I think um, the answer for one of those are 
uh, it's really simple. Um, so the lowercase i in green grass disappeared is actually Kim's choice. Um, he used an alphabet lowercase i. Um, oh, that's in Korean. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's the name of the cyborg, actually. Um, so that was pretty straightforward. Um, and for other works, um, you know, dropping punctuation mark and using the capitalization, um, that was uh, basically the. I think the Korean text didn't have uh, punctuation marks, so the choice is between. Ignoring it and then like using a punctuation mark or dropping a punctuation mark. And I think it was it was right to uh, drop the punctuation mark because when you do so, um, you have different reading experience and you have to um, revive that experience for the English readers as well. So in Korean, when you drop a punctuation mark, it's still clear where the sentence ends yeah. because of the grammar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it usually ends with um with verb and it is conjugated. So the you're gonna read slower, but it's it's still gonna be comprehensible. But what does change is the uh the pace of your uh reading speed or like you know, uh, hmm, how should I say? Uh, when you see a sentence ends without a punctuation mark you are pushed toward the the next sentence yeah, it's like a stream um, a stream of consciousness right almost. exactly right, yeah. i wanted to have that uh in, revived in the english translation um so i decided to drop the punctuation mark but in english when you drop a punctuation mark it becomes almost incomprehensible you know mm-hmm. the sentence can end with a a noun it can end with adverb it can end with verb and it becomes really hard to understand and that's not necessarily what korean readers are experiencing when they read korean text so i thought this is the right place to put capitalization because in english when you start a sentence you start with a capitalization a capitalized letter and in that way um english readers can have some kind of reference without having the punctuation mark so that's why I put punctuation mark. I mean, put uh, cap- capitalized letters, even though Korean doesn't have yeah. that. Yeah, I think it works, and I I love that about Korean. Like the way mm-hmm. the thoughts are kind of like like you don't need the punctuation to have that unit. I think it's really beautiful about the language. And yeah, thank you for that. Um, so I also was wondering. So there's. A lot of like sexual language in the collection um and yet like in in english when it comes to sex there's a lot of terms that can kind of refer to the same thing and so i was wondering if it was ever challenging to decide like what words to use what language to use and what kinds of considerations shape your decisions as translators for me you know i can't recall specifics where i think i was debating between terms, but now that you kind of mention it, maybe I should have. (laughs) Um, I I think I tried to keep what the tone of the poem was. And often there were sexual acts um, or terms described, but because there weren't really in a sexy way, um, I think that the language I also use tend to lean toward more neutral or or clinical. Um, Yeah, so... I I don't know if I have a great or interesting answer for that. Um, 
Um, I'm basically basically the same. Um, mm-hmm. the thing is, um, Korean also have has a uh, different uh words for sex related terms. Um, so Kim was make usually making it, um, you know, formal, clinical, mm-hmm. and if it did so, I followed it. Um, so uh, for example. Um, the poet um, intentionally used clinical terms in the footnote six of death. So I'll read the line. Um, Here, the usage of the term is restricted to the act of heterosexual couple Gray and Bunny Smith, who, for the purpose purposes of reproduction by means of sperm uniting with egg, inserted penis into vagina and through mutual friction uh, resulted in instinct instinctive ejaculation. So the original text was very dry, clinical, and awkward. Mm-hmm. Um, so we tried to do the same in the translation. And the same goes to uh, say, sad vagina. The term Kim chose was umbu, which is clinical, which is pretty clinical. Um, now the problem was the which clinical term to use because umbu refers to the female pubic area, not just vulva or vagina. Um, and I chose vagina because first I wanted to wanted it to be more concise than like female general or private part. Um, and though vagina strictly refers to the passage and umbu a wider area, I thought the English and Korean readers usually think of the same area uh, or similar area when they hear the words. Um, so I didn't have to be precise in that case. Um, there were cases where um, Kim Hyun was using a more casual word, like, you know, tungtungan buji. Um, and that is like basically pussy in um, in English. Um, I don't know if this is going to be censored. <laughs> um, I was going to using... say, we're going to have to put a not safe for work tackle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah um, I feel a little bad um, that this might be censored. I don't know. But um, yeah, so uh the choices were made according to what the poet was doing and poet was pretty clear um in his text Mm -hmm. yeah thanks for that and i love how um i think both of you are describing kind of because that's also the sense i got as a reader of like this like it sounded like the language is kind of clinical and then at the same time like the poems themselves are like so mind-bending it's so yeah, yeah. mentioned there that like works together in a really mm-hmm. complex and like kind of rich and beautiful way and so mm-hmm. um yeah so I, I think both of you have kind of touched on this in various ways but so these poems are really complex as i think listeners have been hearing throughout this conversation and um they're rich both stylistically and in terms of subtext and so i was wondering like how well you felt like you needed to understand a poem in order to translate it. I know you've talked about this to an extent already. Um, but like, how did you know that? Like, I I now know enough to translate this poem. Like, oh man, that I I relate strongly to this question. Um, I was pretty obsessive about this, almost to the point that I think it was maybe detrimental to my own speed. Um, I would find myself spending hours and hours chewing over a poem and, um, you know, just like trying to read everything there is about all of the references. And I would have to like try to resist um you know, my own tendency to to try to um, make things polished and beautiful and, and make it make sense. 
Um, and, and I think what kind of helped me realize where to sort of stop with my own research and my own kind of turning this over in my head is, is just going back to like, what is the writer trying to achieve with this poem? And sometimes that question also was not clear to answer, but, um, yeah, I kind of had, I sort of asked myself that at, at various stages. Sometimes that was the, the hardest part, actually, is because if you don't know how to answer that, then then you're like, maybe more research will help me. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know if I have a great answer for this, but I, I feel like eventually you have a deadline to meet. So you can't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You can't spend forever reading about Amer- all the Americana and all of the. I was like, can I, should I watch this movie? Should I, like, because he makes this, you know, Ash of the Time that, like, you know, that poem that I um, read is a reference to a Wonka uh, Y movie. And I was like, um, should I watch this? Should I, like, do I need to, you know, know about this? So, yeah. So, um, mm. Anyways, yeah, that's yeah. my experience. <laughs> I think um, it was definitely important to understand the poems more so than the readers. But um, I guess I had a little bit lower expectation for myself, I guess. <laughs> I was a little bit more relaxed um, <laughs> because um, I believe that poets and um, the um, authors themselves they don't know what they are doing all the time, right? They go like, you know, they move intuitive moves sometimes, you know. Um, they sometimes don't know why they are doing what they are doing. So I didn't think that was really important. If I can figure it out, it's good. But, you know, if I can't, I wasn't too worried about it. <clears throat> but, uh, and also, uh, Kim Hyun, again, uh, he was being pretty disruptive and unconventional, um, and nebulous. Um, so I took it for granted that some of his line is, is, it is supposed to be incomprehensible. Mm. Um, but I thought it is important to know what is not making sense, right? So you don't have to know why the poet made the line incomprehensible or why it should be, how it should be comprehended even. But if it doesn't make sense, you have to know what is making that line incomprehensible because you have to translate that. You have to, you have yeah. to translate that experience. So whenever I was confused and couldn't figure out what's going on, I was trying to capture what is confusing in this mm-hmm. poem. And, you know, try to recreate the device and effects the poet used to make it confusing. Yeah, that's such a lovely way of, of putting it. Um, yeah, so Sion and Archana, we have taken up a lot of your time. So I have just one last question for both of you. What are you working on next? Uh, perhaps I gotta go first because you know I have nothing. She has more things going on. Um, I'm not working on anything particular at this moment. I'm trying to focus on my research, and once my research is on track, I'll get back to tra- a poetry translation for. But for now, yeah, I'm not doing anything. Do you want to tell yeah, us about stay your research? Stay tuned. <laughs> stay tuned. I'll be back. Um. On my end, um, so I was chosen uh, this year to be um, 
uh, part of the American Literary Translators Association. Wow, that is a mouthful. American <laughs> Literary Translators Association's uh, Emerging Translators Mentorship Program for <laughs> Korean Poetry, um, funded through LTI Korea. And I'm translating poetry by E. Jenny from her collection Amado Africa. Um, mm -hmm. and I've been, I've been working with Jack Jung, a poet and translator of, uh, Lee Sung's work. And, um, that has been really lovely. And, um, you know, I've been corresponding with Lee Jenny about her translations and have gotten some poems, uh, published, um, and I'm working on some of the rest in, in that collection. And I've also been translating fairly regularly with Korean Literature Now, um, which is a quarterly literary magazine published by the Literature Translation Institute of Korea, um, translating some of the, the best young, um, actually all female so far for, for the works that I've done, all female writers um, of the last couple of years. So that has been uh, a lot of fun. And, and you know, I, I, um, I'm kind of grateful that I'm, I have the opportunity to, to keep translating poetry and prose and yeah, it's been exciting. <laughs> Congratulations. And, and I'm so grateful that we get to read more of your work because it's really <laughs> exciting. Um, I appreciate and, that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much for joining me here today, both of you. Um, Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks a lot for inviting us. Yeah. And, and take care everyone to our listeners. <laughs> thank you uh, thank you bye bye bye